Church, a number of years ago, there was an ethnic group who, due to harsh economic conditions in their homeland, was forced to leave the familiar and settle as refugees in a foreign land. They became immigrants. And as with many of the immigrants to our nation, in time, these people settled, had families who had families, and within several generations, they'd largely forgotten their homeland as they assimilated to the new. Now, at first, things went well for this group. They had equal opportunity, and they enjoyed the protection of the government. However, as time went by and as circumstances changed, so did the leadership's attitude towards this minority group, where once they were afforded privilege, now they found themselves marginalized, where before they'd been protected, now they found themselves exploited. And sadly, times times became as genuinely oppressive as in ways they had been in the harsh experiences that had brought them to this new land in the first place. And so unsurprisingly, the people appealed to government. They used the channels provided them to draw attention to their plight, and they asked for an advocate, but none was forthcoming. In fact, it seemed that their willingness to become politically active only made things worse, causing the entire nation, it seemed, to turn against them where before they'd had allies willing to commiserate with their deteriorating circumstances. The number of those who could be counted as friends now dwindled as the intolerance increased. It's a sad story that I fear is one sharing many parallels to our present day. Now, thankfully, in this instance, an educated and gifted man arrived, promising liberation. He was born a commoner in a country that was in the country in which they were all suffering. Uh, But he was adopted by an influential and politically connected family. And as a young man, this individual's growing identification with his heritage had resulted in him being exiled. However, enabled to return many years later, this man was the perfect go-between between the two. He was familiar with the oppressed, but he was also able to walk the halls of power. And so this leader miraculously rallied his people and led them to freedom. His campaign promise was awesome. It was that they would be returned to to their homeland where they would experience good in greater measure than the hardship they'd known in exile. However, as you can only imagine, any mass exodus takes time. It involves the support of the majority, and it's never without a hiccup. And thus, it wasn't long before this hero was envied. And at the first opportunity, those disgruntled by his success and their own inconvenience experienced as a result of this transition, they revolted. They attempted a coup, spreading the sentiment that life was better in the land that they left. In essence, these men and women proposed a return to oppression under slave-like conditions, work without representation and the promise of promotion. The opposition party's proposal was nothing short of an endorsement of the chattel-style slavery that marred our nation in the 19th century. In their words, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Does that sound familiar? Emmanuel, I'm always astonished when I read the words spoken by the Israelites to Moses. Now granted, I'm not sitting in a desert surrounded by hundreds of thousands of thirsty, tired people, but still, 
The proposal offered by Israel's leaders to return to Egypt just blows my mind. Particularly when set against the good news preferred by Moses. God is going to deliver you into the land of Canaan. The land God himself described as flowing with milk and honey in Exodus 3.17. Now I see the suggestion to return to Egypt as simply psycho. And yet the people eat it up, don't they? They take Moses' gospel and they kick it to the curb, choosing instead the gospel of Israel's elders. It's absolutely shocking, right? I mean, we never discard such promises as are held out in the gospel, choosing alternates instead, would we? I mean, surely we couldn't be convinced by others that what we've believed isn't enough and that there's, there's something we must add in order to be satisfied or to be saved. Do we know the gospel well enough to distinguish it from the lies so rampant in our supposed Judeo-Christian culture? Well, we'd like to think so, wouldn't we? But so did the Galatians. And tragically, they, like Israel, succumbed to a message that while not nearly as blatant in its distinction from Paul's gospel as the people's proposal was next to God's promise through Moses, nevertheless, it served the same end, a return to slavery and death. Church, there's only one gospel. Only one. And we have to know it. So to this end, would you open your Bibles, if they're not open already, to Galatians chapter 1 and find verse 6. Galatians 1 and verse 6. For those who were with us last week, we began a journey through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, noting the author's immediate concern to establish his authority as divinely endowed, thus underwriting everything that would follow. And next, we established his audience as specifically churches, local collections of covenanted, baptized believers seeking to live out their faith in obedience to God's word and for his glory. And then finally, we examine Paul's aims, concluding that the apostles' chief concern was to proclaim the gospel and to protect the gospel, where the second emphasis, the, the protection of the gospel, will serve as the principal subject of our time together this morning. And so I invite you to follow along now as I read our text. Galatians 1, beginning with verse 6. This is where the apostle writes, I'm astonished, astonished, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And may God bless the public reading of his word. And as I said before, Paul's principal subject in this epistle is the gospel. But as you no doubt caught, our text for today does not address its content. Rather, its cruciality, meaning the gospel's importance. As one pastor theologian observes, this text doesn't define the gospel. The rest of the book 
does that. And therefore, what we hear today, I believe, in these verses is Paul's desperate desire to set his readers straight on the principal truth that there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. As verse 6 reads, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And then just in case, just in case any reader is, is given the false impression that there exists such a thing as a different or alternate gospel, he continues, verse 7, to say, which is really no gospel at all. In other words, there's only one version of the gospel, the story of Christ's life, death, resurrection that rescues us by grace through faith from the present evil age according to the will of God, ensuring us peace with him forever and ever. Amen. There's only one gospel that saves. And church, this ought not come as a surprise to us this morning, despite our penchant for pluralism, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. And as Peter later proclaimed, standing before the Sanhedrin as recorded in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found where? No one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's a sentiment shared with the prophet Isaiah who recorded God's word to Israel in the Old Testament writing in chapter 43 of his book in verse 11, I speaking as God, I even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed, saved, and proclaimed. I, not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. And a while back, I was sitting with a friend, Vinkit, he's the priest at the Hindu temple, and just down the street from us. And many of you know Vinkit. We've fellowshiped with he and his family. We've also power washed his house, depending on how long you've been here. Uh, we've had a, a relationship with him for quite some time. But, but he and I were discussing faith, and he was explaining to me by the use of imagery how he accepted Jesus as God, and he was glad for the many who followed him. However, he, this is Vinkit speaking, he didn't worship Jesus exclusively, but, but he wasn't opposed to, to praying to Jesus from time to time. Because from his perspective, all religions ultimately are the same. Or at least they have the same end. That's guiding us to and preparing us for eternity. For, for Vinkit, life could be likened to a, 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 a giant mountain, if you will. And we're all traveling up this mountain. And the path that we take, in his analogy, is our religion. And therefore, in his mind... All roads lead to the summit. Therefore, he was quite happy to recognize other deities, even to appeal to some of them from time to time for assistance. Because in the end, we're all going to get there. The only question is when. Now, as Christians, I hope that we can see such optimism for what it is. It's the lies of a dangerous, foreign, false religion. Sadly, though, sadly, though, the foreign origin of this belief isn't unique to the east as, as we have a church less than a mile from us who share this concept with the hindus while also sharing our judeo-christian heritage unitarian universalists preach a similar gospel that it doesn't matter in the least which path you take to get to god all roads get to heaven in the end whatever that means for them but friends 
that gospel is no gospel at all. And while we may be tempted to dismiss Paul's concerns voiced here when considered against Hinduism or, or Buddhism, say, it's a whole different ballgame when the faiths being compared are those with a shared history. And this is what was happening to the Galatian churches. They weren't being infiltrated by idol-worshiping Gentiles intent on, on confusion or leading the faithful to worship Mars or, or Zeus or Apollos. Their gospel confusion wasn't coming from preachers urging congregants to covenant with any one of the vast Greek pantheon in exchange for eternal life. These infiltrators were speaking about grace. They were urging listeners to decide, using terms like gospel, Jesus, church, and faith, only they weren't using these words in the same way as Paul had, or Peter, or John, and the rest of the disciples who had received their gospel straight from the Lord Jesus Christ rather than from men. And Emmanuel, while we live far removed from the first century when Paul dictated this admonition, our adversary hasn't changed his tactics in the least. I'm convinced that the average American is exposed to enough Christian talk by merit of our culture that they know words like grace, and sin, Jesus, gospel, even faith. The tragedy, however, is that most have no idea what these terms mean, nor how they constitute the gospel. And this is why so many today are, are drawn to follow TV preachers or evangelists, Bible scholars who sound slick, promise much, and yet... If scrutinized, they won't be found engaged in local fellowships. Oh, they'll give all manner of, of excuses as to why they don't belong to Christ's church. They might even suggest that they are the church. But when you look closely at these gatherings, so-called, they, they host, they, they do not exhibit the biblically established defining characteristics of Christ's body or bride, the church. And nor do they serve the same ends. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, we must know the gospel so that we might be on our guard against every different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. And so the underlying truth, I believe, of our text today is that there is only one gospel. And so, friends, there are at least two implications, then, that we can draw from this truth. With the first being that universalism is wrong. Universalism is wrong. We will not all get to heaven one day. And then second... A second implication is that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Now, I realize that when we hear this word, many of us feel like my kids look after we've given them Dramamine in preparation for a long trip to combat car sickness. Oh, theology. Oh, that sounds about as exciting as history. Oh, oh my gosh. And your pastor's passionate about historical Theology, oh, that sounds about as bad as sedation dentistry, right? What's a, now I can see eyes starting to click and go, that's what's wrong with this guy. I've wondered, I've always wondered. But church, in all seriousness, it is essential that we think rightly about God. Why? Because there's no points for sincerity. There are no points for sincerity. Unlike many of the gray areas that we struggle with today in regards to ethics, when it comes to salvation, it's black or white. I mean, sincerely, or sincerity when you're wrong, only means that you are sincerely wrong. So doctrine matters, as I believe Paul makes clear at the start of our text. And so, the principal truth for this passage for us this morning is that there is only one gospel. 
But then growing out of this truth, I believe there are three statements of significance which we would do well to address. The first being that to forsake this gospel is astonishing. To forsake the gospel is astonishing. As verse 6 opens, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And what makes this desertion so astonishing, church, is first of all, the Galatians are abandoning God. The one referenced there as calling them by the grace of Christ, this isn't a self-reference, meaning Paul isn't the subject here. God is. It's a fact clarified later, chapter 5 and verse 8, where there Paul compares the church's gospel abandonment to a runner who's been cut off and kept from obeying, an act that clearly, as Paul writes, did not come from the one who calls you. And so this one is God, and he has personally called the Galatians out of darkness into his marvelous light, but they're no longer interested. Emoji face. Now, unlike my wife and the Apostle Paul, I'm, I am one of those people who is impressed by position. I don't know why, but ever since I was a child, I've always been awed by people in positions of of influence, so whether it be in athletics, or academia, or whatever, people who are famous impress me. They just do. Melinda, like the Apostle Paul, could care less, could give a rip. I care. And while I've rarely met anyone famous, I did have the privilege of meeting and hanging out with Michael Chang. Now, I realize most of you here this morning will be like, Michael who? <laughs> and that's a fair, fair response because he's old, like me. He's no longer on the top of his game. But back in the 90s, Michael Chang was the man, youngest person to ever win a Grand Slam in tennis, believer to boot. Chang was my hero. And when I was teaching tennis in Birmingham, I had the opportunity to go on a mission project where he was the draw. He was the main man. And I actually got to ride with him to different training sites. I got to hit with Michael Chang. It was absolutely awesome. I was geeking out. It was great. I couldn't in my wildest imagination, church, ever have responded to his invitation to play by saying, uh, Mike, appreciate it, bro, but I think I'm going to go over here and hit with this random dude. What's your name? Bob. Yeah, I think I'll go play with Bob if you don't mind. Bob, your name's not random. I love you, but You know, personal invitation from my childhood hero was such that I was floored, honored, overwhelmed, freaked out, but not, in, a, not an opportunity that I could have ever passed up. And church, in a way, but only to an infinite degree, is this our experience when the God of the universe calls us to follow him? How could we abandon such a glorious calling? It's astonishing. But the Galatians were abandoning God and rejecting his grace. Rejecting his grace, as Paul says, deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Why would anyone reject grace? Why would you turn your back on that which you did not merit in the first place and that you could not do anything to lose? In Galatians 5, 4, Paul later in his letter describes what was happening in this way. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated or severed, that word means, from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Have you ever heard someone say of the gospel, man, there's no way that God could do that without us giving him something or doing something in return. That's just too good to be true, right? Have you ever heard someone express those sentiments or possibly you expressed those at some point in the past? When we cling 
to the lie that we can pay God back or in some way contribute to our salvation. We are doing exactly what the Galatians were doing. We're rejecting grace. And, and in so doing, we are rejecting the gospel, church. And that is astonishing. Astonishing. The Galatians abandoned God, rejected his grace, and turned by choice. Turned by choice. Paul's words. The Galatians were turning to a different gospel, where this direction change reflects a conscious determination. And so their new compass setting didn't just happen to them. It wasn't this passive process. They brought it about. And church, what this means is that despite our aversion to guilt and accepting responsibility for our sin, we are without excuse. There's not a person who may claim innocence before God. We've all rejected him, his will and his ways as expressed in his word. And therefore, we all stand justly condemned. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the offer graciously held out in the gospel. But the Galatians were turning it down which was just blowing Paul's mind. You foolish Galatians. He just can't contain himself when he gets to chapter 3, verse 1. It's like, you nut jobs. Who's bewitched you? And friend, the invitation extended to the Galatians remains on offer. Have you received it by faith? Have you confessed your sin? Repented of your sin? Believed? Yet Jesus is who the scriptures reveal him to be, the Son of God and Savior for all those whom God has called to be his children? Or, or are you like the Galatians, turning, attempting to do good, and so hopefully to merit a place in heaven, even though, as Paul later elaborates, you don't receive the Spirit through obedience to the law. So there's only one gospel, and to forsake it is absolutely astonishing. Further, second statement that I believe is significant that grows out of Paul's principal point is this. Rejection of the gospel means condemnation. Rejection of the gospel means condemnation. Verse 7, Paul says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach the gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned, exclamation point. The condemnation Paul references here reflects the term anathema, anathema, in the original language of the New Testament. And this is a word that means to cut off or exclude, and it reflects a sense, as one commentator describes it, of being under a divine curse. And so for Paul, all those false teachers responsible for creating confusion in the churches and who, who were trying to pervert the gospel, they were all under God's wrath. And this wasn't some simply out-of-favor style standing before God where like one of my children might do when desirous of a second helping of, of ice cream and asks mom, mom says no. So they turn to dad in hopes of getting a different response. And when found out, they just smile. <laughs> I was just kidding. I was just kidding. And we all laugh. No. God's condemnation, his anathema, church, Paul describes more fully Romans 9.3 as being cut off from Christ and doomed to eternal punishment 
2 Thessalonians 1.9, he, he goes on and says that those who don't obey the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from God's presence. This is serious. This is holiness of God serious. Because that will be the experience of all of those who hold to a false gospel, only they will not be covered by Christ's atoning blood. And therefore they will suffer the full wrath of God for their sin. Paul recognized that a false gospel is no gospel and it leaves all who believe it under God's condemnation. Therefore, those who propagated it were condemned as well as those who rejected the true gospel. Now, while Paul doesn't make the connection to this group explicit here in our text, he does when writing later to the Corinthians in our Bible's first letter, chapter 16, verse 22, where there he uses the same language but he says this, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse, anathema, condemnation be on him. In other words, rejection of the gospel is rejection of the Lord, and all who do so stand condemned. Have you rejected the gospel? I mean, if you're here this morning and you've never admitted your sin, confessed it, repented, and believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you remain under God's curse. And if you were to die today, your eternity would be one of unimaginable horror. Unimaginable horror for His unbelievably holy, indescribably good, and eternally glorious as God is, so will be the experience of those who are His children, while those who are His enemies will face His wrath in equal measure. Unbelievable, indescribable, and eternal. Are you under God's condemnation today? There's only one gospel church. And to reject it is, as Paul says, absolutely astonishing. As it means that you remain under God's wrath. While those who are servants of the gospel seek God's glory, not that of others. That's the third statement of significance given us here in our text. Servants of the gospel glorify God, not people. Would you look back with me for just a moment to verse 10 there in chapter 1. This is where Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And friends, this final statement, I believe, is absolutely liberating for at least two reasons. First of all, as people who live in an age of networking, be it in person or through social media or whatever, we are more connected today than we are, were in any other period of history. Which means that when we make decisions today, we have that many more opinions willing to weigh in on the wisdom of our choice. Friends, near, far, some you didn't even know you had. Friends of a friend can quickly chime in through our Facebook feeds and share their thoughts on your life stream. Point is, who do you please? Who do you please? And how... How do you please everyone? Can you? The more you think about it, the greater the stress levels, right? Because how do you know who's right? When you look to a support site for help, uh, maybe it's with an equipment problem, relational problem, whatever, how, how do you know? How do you know? You can read a slew of posts on these sites, but how do you know which one's right? Is it the number of thumbs up it got? I mean, does that really reflect truth? And would you, would you be willing to entrust your eternal destiny to an internet-like forum 
and go with the gospel that's simply gotten the most likes. Church, the gospel frees us from the fear of rejection because God graciously accepts us through Christ's work on the cross, not because of what we do. We live for an audience of one. We live to please Christ and Him only. It doesn't matter what the world thinks because the world contributes nothing to our salvation. And this is liberating. And then a second reason that I believe this statement is freeing is because verses 8 and 9 in those verses, Paul has said some harsh things, condemning specific people known to the Galatian churches, and not gently. The anathema Paul is calling for here is as harsh as God is holy. So this letter didn't come with warm fuzzies. It was as direct as one can be while remaining loving. And we don't like confrontation, do we? We don't like this confrontation. You know, people have, have honestly never enjoyed such interaction. But sadly, our age of technology has made us even less inclined to such face-to-face -face rebuke. Today, if you, just, if you don't like somebody, then you just unfriend them on Facebook. But in the church, we are some of the worst when it comes to confrontation because we get hung up in this whole judge not lest you be judged heresy. And I call it a heresy because we make the mistake, or we, rather we mistake the point of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 7 as providing us license to avoid confrontation. Now, most certainly, we aren't the judge. And therefore, in our interactions with others, we don't hold the ultimate authority over their spiritual well-being. But that said, we are called to scrutinize one another's lives that we may more fully reflect God's glory as given us in the gospel. And this is why Paul's words are so liberating. When we live to please only one person, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are free from the fear of how others may react when rebuked in the Lord. And so we may confidently obey the only one who matters, who is God, and know that he will take care of the rest. So this means, I believe, that we ought to be humbly and lovingly examining each other's lives in light of the gospel in order that we may more fully Live it out. Because the church is described in the scriptures as a family. Not a business. Not some cold, distant institution. But a family, among other things. And were a family member to miss a meal, or two, or three, wouldn't their absence be felt? And if it wasn't, what kind of family would it be? And would it be worth belonging to such a family? But when noted, wouldn't the loving thing be to seek out that family member because of loving concern for their well-being? And, and what if suddenly we became aware of them engaging in activities detrimental to their health? Wouldn't a loving family intervene? Emmanuel, the sad reality is that many churches love so little that they sit silently by while people embrace gospels that are no gospel at all. And we're not that kind of family. At least we desire not to be. Because we believe there's only one gospel. And when we see family turning to other teachings or evidencing things inconsistent with the scriptures, then we desire to be, as Paul was, astonished. Why? Why? Because we know that such behavior may 
be a sign that these individuals had never experienced the gospel in the first place and they remain condemned. And so, because we live to glorify God, we are committed to having the hard conversations in the hopes that such rebukes will be received as the psalmist describes them in Psalm 141.5 as kindness. That such a rebuke or a confrontation may be as oil on one's head. Friends, I pray that we know the gospel and that we're growing daily in our understanding of its impact in our lives. But if you're here this morning and you're not sure, if you're here this morning and that you might find yourself caught in a sin that you've battled with for years and you've been unable to separate yourself from it, even now you're still struggling with doing the right thing, although you know what it is and have even felt the conviction of God's Holy Spirit in your heart to do the right thing. If you're still battling, this is what the church is for. Don't, don't ignore the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Don't ignore the brothers and sisters who sit beside you on a Sunday committed to worshiping Christ. But we're not here for simply show. We're here for the long haul. This is a marathon, so described in the scriptures. And if you aren't sure today, then I would invite you to come and speak to me at the close of our service. For as things stand, according to God's word, you are condemned. Friends, don't dismiss the severity of God's wrath. Because in so doing, you will miss the significance of His grace. Don't miss the severity of God's wrath. Because if you do, you'll miss the significance of His grace. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, You are a God who is holy. And we sang those very words. And Father, we've seen a picture of that holiness now presented in your word and what that means in regards to how we live our lives and why the gospel is such good news. Father, for if you weren't all that holy, it would make no difference how we lived our lives. If, if religion was merely a journey to the top of a mountain and no matter which route we took, we'd all get there in the end, then sin would be of, of no consequence beyond the fact that my actions might hinder or limit another, but it would have no moral signification whatsoever. But Father, when we turn to the Scriptures and discover that You are the judge, You have determined what is right and what is wrong, we realize that behavior inconsistent with Your Word is offensive. And it's offensive commensurate with the holiness, the rightness, and the truth of the one whose law has been broken. And God, you are infinitely holy. And therefore, our sin merits infinite response. Father, that's what makes your grace in the gospel so astonishing. That you would forgive us in Christ. Taking away our guilt. Clothing us with Christ's righteousness. So that we may be known as your children. God, this is not something we could accomplish on our own. Father, thank you for your gospel. And Father, thank you that there's only one. 
that we don't have multiple. Lord, and I pray this morning that if there are any struggling still with living a life in obedience to your word, living out the change that you have brought, Father, this is why you have put us together as a family. Lord, might we turn to one another and seek strength in one another so that we might in our lives picture to a world that watches the truth of the gospel, of how significant sin is. Lord, and of those friends that we may have who do not know you, they stand condemned. Father, and that which they face at this moment is unimaginable. And Lord, we have an opportunity to speak the truth to them. God, but if we continue to live sinfully around them as if it's not a big deal, then we become complicit in their misunderstanding. Father, would you remind us of what you have given us in the gospel daily? For we are all so prone to forget. Father, we praise you because you have given us the gospel. And we pray you for these things in the name of your Son, whose work is the gospel. Jesus, amen.